Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Trading Journal. This is not a podcast where we try to tell you what to buy, what to sell. That's This is not what this podcast is for. Instead, this is Trading Journal, which, as the name suggests, is instead a place to simply compile the rationale and the ideas and the feelings of why I make the decisions I make, and the same with any of the guests and re- recurring speakers we have on this podcast. So for today, August the 10th of 2020, the first episode, today we will be talking about what will fundamentally change because of COVID-19. Take a deeper look into a specific industry, today the video game industry, and we will end the podcast by talking about Pinterest, that wonderful social media platform. So without any more ado, introductions, let's dive in. Today's thematic concept segment is about COVID-19 and what will change fundamentally as a result of it. Now, as it is August and COVID's progression in the U.S. continues along its uh, its growth, uh, close to five months after the U.S. originally shut down, quote unquote, back in March. Uh, it's the the outlook has changed a lot. It's safe to say, you know, we've gone past the the huge stock market crash of in March. I'm not sure what it'll be called in the future. Perhaps the great Corona bounce, perhaps. But I'll let some economists take the lead on that. But We've had the big stock market crash. We've had incredible rallies of so many companies, even reaching all-time highs like Apple, continuing its incredible run along with many other companies that are large. At the same time, there's a lot of, not necessarily related to the stock market, but a lot of change with personal, personal habits to you know, places shutting down permanently. And so while there's so much that can change and it's yet to be, confirmed as to how i think that looking from my perspective from from where i am on the east coast of united states um one of the first things that are going to change certainly is fundamentally and by fundamentally i think permanently which means that we look at the stock the stock is not going to return to that that previous hot what it was previously before the situation and we'll have to change its business model completely or in a significant manner. And the first one of those sectors is travel. I know that there's been a a lot of people have been banking on buying like American Airlines, Norwegian, Carnival, cruise lines and airlines because of the rationale that it's going to bounce back eventually. But I don't, from my perspective, I don't think so. I think recently doing summer classes and working through those things and the prevalence of Zoom and those online options are going to fundamentally change business travel. I don't have access, fortunately, to to the airline's internal documents and their rationales and, and the information about how they make money off of their flights, which is the premise of an airline, right? It's the planes and the flights they make. But from my understanding, for and anyone who's gone on Google Flights or any of those tools to look for flights is that 
if you are willing to sit in economy, you can find pretty affordable plane tickets. You book three months in advance, you use screeners, you, you know, you're okay with layovers. You can get pretty affordable flights, you know, less than $200, depending on, on the journey. You can even get, you know, $40, $30 tickets for across the United States, right? Those, even if you look at economies of scale, and if you're looking at like 200 people in coach, that's still not going to amount to much. Whereas with a business, a business class ticket, which is close to a thousand dollars per ticket, and those the business class is where these airlines get their margin. But business class is going to change fundamentally. There was already arguments before that a lot of business travel was a bit superfluous with consulting and and whatnot. But there's never been the impetus to have a proof of concept as to what the alternative would be of doing things virtually, but now with COVID forcing it upon us and those business, businesses, then a lot of them have said they're okay with that. If you look at the stories about, about like Facebook and some of these Silicon Valley companies going work from home, right? Which affects real estate. But then if you continue that principle, if like they're okay with going remote, that the next natural extension is then having to travel us definitely having to go to conferences having to go to meet clients and all that which will fundamentally change airlines now cruise lines i think again from like all of this is from my my perspective of who i am to take it with a grain of salt but cruise lines there is the big story at the beginning of the pandemic about the one cruise line uh stuck in port because of covid cases on it and you know i think uh, somebody put it succinctly that the the business of cruise lines is to put as many people as possible into a confined as into a confined space which is a cruise right you have only so many so much space on the boat and you want to of course make the most money from for doing so but that's the business line model of a cruise line and that's essentially the antithesis of what you want today of social distancing and being outdoors. And, you know, and I think that's going to be something that's completely antithetical. And so will cruises continue to exist? I believe some cruises have actually started going back out. But then, you know, with that push from like, I believe Norwegian is that, you know, there's been issues with doing so with cases popping up. And then countries not letting them go to ports and creating all the logistical issues. I think cruise lines are kind of, kind of a done deal in terms of their widespread ex, uh, popularity and acceptance. I think they're now continue to exist as if there's niche industries. I don't, I don't believe it's going to turn into like one of those peculiar niches of say like luxury travel for the rich, but it's certainly not, in my opinion, going to return to that mass appeal. I think if there is a silver lining is that there's going to be a pivot to more local stuff. I think if you look at Airbnb bookings, there's been a shift from going to like mega cities or the big cities, right? But transitioning instead to more local destinations, which provides its own opportunities. I think looking at it's like those remember growing up, you know, you see the signs for like local amusement parks that were traveling through. I think those are going to, gain some more popularity i think uh, so doubling down on 
more indoor stuff. I don't, I don't have a better example off the top of my head, but something like Peloton, something you can do indoors, right? Because gyms serve the same, uh, same fundamental changes because of COVID that cruise lines and airlines are going to be dealing with. And at the same time as as were those two concepts, which already were a bit stretched. I think if you look at the, the balance sheets of airlines, they were already a bit stretched and tight with the amount of money they can make from that. Cruise lines, the same thing. But then if you look at the what else is happening, and if you look at COVID as, a, as an accelerator of an accelerator of trends that existed but simply lacked the momentum to move forward at a rapid pace then COVID happened and is now accelerating that healthcare is going to be significantly different not only is there going to have to be a reevaluation of current healthcare systems and their ability to handle sudden surges but you also see a, a huge change in how people approach it and that there is now that approach to telehealth and you know, I've seen with the merger between Teladoc and Livongo is that the share prices of those companies that there is now more of an acceptance. I think in a in a poll of people who would be okay going using the virtual virtually conversing with their doctor about for the checkups, there's like something significantly past fifty percent. I believe it was closer to seventy nine percent, but don't quote me on that. But that shows that there is this acceptance of where previously there would have been hesitation and there would have been a desire to to have maintained that traditional approach now with this fundamental change in how the world is, which which can be argued, then that's something that's going to be accepted and there's going to be incredible room for that for not only these new companies to pivot into, but also for existing ones to to adjust, like such as United Health. I'm not that well versed. I haven't read their 10K report, right? But I think there'll there'll be an impetus to move in that direction. And then work well, work is, is interesting. It's very broad, right? Work from working at a tech company to to working at Chipotle, which I can speak to. But it's going to be fundamentally different. I think I think they look at Zoom and video conferencing. Those are going to stay permanently as tools. At the same time, in time, get back to what was previously mentioned with the work from home is that it's Again, only five months in, so it's very hard to tell. And I think what Facebook has done in that Facebook has said could work at home for for now. But at the same time, they have also rented out this huge New York City midtown office building right on a lease. So, you know, on a, presumably on a good price. And so it just shows how, you know, people are hedging their bets and, and you know, like, Probably none of us can truly 100% predict the the real outcomes of COVID-19 because none of us could, because none of us really have that breadth of experience to really talk about all the fundamental ways that's changed. I am a con, essentially a, a retail investor, and because of my limited funds, I'm not a hedge fund. At the same time, also just to uh, make a this is a very generic consumer. I don't have extreme income and ability to spend. And I also therefore don't have that exposure and the the knowledge to base opinions on wider things. So again, uh, take 
what I'm saying, with a hedge of a hint of salt. But again, I think everything is changed to a degree. Although travel has fundamentally changed. And then the acceptance of doing things remotely has changed, which if you have to look at companies, is certainly going to increase the, the, the potential for ones that have exposure to not necessarily being like the front service products, right? Like something like Etsy, which is a, a store, a storefront essentially. Not sure how fundamental something like that is going to stay, but something like Shopify, which provides the infrastructure for those online platforms, or something like Fastly or Cloudflare that actually that actually provides like the actual backbone to allow those things to happen. Like those are probably going to continue along the growth trends because those are necessities. At the same time, though, if anything has to stay the same, you'd imagine that like the necessities again, like food, resource mining, those while the specifics of how they happen will look different for the people in the field. At the end of the day, everybody's going to need to eat. Phones and computers require rare minerals. And so those things will continue along. To surmise, COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the world. For I don't believe that there's ever been a moment where the world has, to such an extent, actually completely shut, almost completely shut down at the same time. I don't think, I think this is, look at March, you know, like everything's so different. Look at information about factory pollution, all that. Like it was down across the world for for that period of time. And so that's that's significant. And so if you want to extrapolate that, COVID-19 is also significant in its impact on businesses fundamentally. And so people piling into cruise lines or airlines need to, be willing to accept the risk of those companies and also be ready and willing to transition quickly into new new industries and new sectors because of covid moving up to our next section our deep dive on video games today's deep dive section industry is video games i've admittedly played more than i probably should have during this time of uh, quarantine uh, but i think that you know one of the important principles that i believe in and something that i tend to continue on with this podcast is to speak to what i know and so i won't necessarily want to argue about the difference between amd's microprocessors and intel's because i'm not well versed enough about those but i can speak about video games and i can read a balance sheet and so that's what we're going to talk about today. And now the video game industry has been one of those escapes that people have turned to now that movie theaters and many of those alternatives no longer are viable or possible, right? AMC theaters still haven't opened. Movies have been pushed back. Travel is not possible. Meeting with friends is much more difficult if you're adhering to recommended social distancing guidelines. And so video games and have been the alternative. And... And so you'd imagine that there'd be much more activity with these products. And then that would resultantly have an impact on those companies' bottom lines. And so today we're going to be looking at the, the five companies that have stood out to me in the video game industry. And just do a quick walkthrough of 
of them and see the trends of the video game industry. Now, it should be prefaced that the video game industry is a bit, from, from my understanding, a bit cyclical and that it is, as video games themselves are, are a cycle of because of the development process and and that and also a bit a bit more volatile because of hits and stuff that affect the the estimates for earnings reports and so i want to consider video game companies to be blue chips because of the fickle nature of them and for the potential for disruption but they are an interesting sector with some interesting companies with storied histories and the first company that we'll be taking a look at is Activision. Stock ticker, stock ticker APVI. And Activision is probably the biggest thing that they've, biggest piece of news that they've had is releasing Call of Duty Mobile in, in China. I believe having, from last thing I've read, 35 million players sign up for it again which which is the big hit but again it's i'm sure that's been priced in into the company but from just looking at some of its fundamentals as a p ratio of 35 it makes 6.5 billion so it's not it's one of the the bigger ends and it it is an established player in the industry with established titles such as Call of Duty and Diablo, the Overwatch, World of Warcraft. So it's it's been around since 2008. It has had some controversy along the way. Some of its some of its titles noticeably I believe uh, with Overwatch I th I think. But Activision, it does Activision Blizzard. It does have a, a brand. It does have some strong IPs. Now it could be argued that some of them are on the decline, and so Activision. And, and same goes for some of these companies that we'll talk about. But Activision isn't. It's not one of the companies that you full. I would fully be jumping at the rails to pick up because it's. It's a it's a video game company that's purely software focused. It's not it doesn't have much more of a of scale to it. There's competition in its biggest properties. The like Call of Duty, like this Battlefield, this competition of that. It does have does some diversity in, in how it's moved to say like esports as a and mobile gaming as ways to diversify its revenue stream. But at the end of the day, they're not dwelling in hardware. They're not, they're ultimately a software company that depends on releasing new products to, to invigorate users to go and purchase or subscribe to their, to their games. And that's a bit risky. I read, I did not read Activision's 10K report, but I read EA's. And the thing I was going through EA's 10K report, I was reading the, like the risks they detailed, and all of them were so into. I never thought about it, but think about it, like there's ex risk of exposure to international markets and different trends occurring overseas. There's risk to, you know, development delays and 
that can significantly affect the product's cycle. And then there's the but the biggest risk that came down to is creating a creating a, a quote com compelling consumer product end quote, which which ultimately is the name the name of the deal. But you know, game titles come and go. Call of Duty's declined a bit from at least from like my circle. Uh, if you look at sales, like there's more there's more of a of a market but at the same time there's also been more competition there's more game companies have come up indie publishing is publishing is more viable with like uh like i say democratization of game developing and publishing and so is it a bad company not not necessarily has it you know, it makes money but it's also not something that i'd be the most comfortable piling into because it does it doesn't have a, a, a strong niche and it i don't have confidence in the in the industry as a whole to to be a consistent because uh looking at it from prospect of like holding it long term and not having to worry about it and check on it continuously and put like a stop loss order i don't have that confidence in it at its lowest point because of coronavirus, the stock price fell to $52. And now it's trading at $82 now in August, the $30 increase. Do I think that, do I believe that the the fundamentals of its business, that its income has grown 60%? To be, to be fair, I don't believe that its income has grown 60%. And so Activision, and the same will go for some of the, the companies I'll be talking about. It's an interesting company, but going it's not a what do we call it blue chip. Next up is Ubisoft, and again, a stock ticker UBI. And a bit of the the same deal. It is a smaller company if you look off of market cap of eight billion compared to sixty-three billion. But Ubisoft the same the same story as Activision in terms of its business model and outlook. They make software to game and and they try to sell the game and and they do it. Now Ubisoft, it is French in contrast to to being America, uh, a California based company. And so and as students around the world in Canada to of course France. And so it does have you could surmise a bit more of an international exposure, which could be could be a bit of a of a cap in its in its hat. But again, it has strong IPs: Assassin's Creed, Rainbow Six, Just Dance, right? But again, it falls into the same issue of its dependence upon consumers going out to buy the game. And if you have a series of duds, then you're out of luck. Like the Assassin's Creed, it used to be like uh, I believe every year or every two years they release a game, but then they've they've been panned by by critics and gamers for for not de delivering a good product. And now they've had to revamp their business model to where they're releasing now when Assassin's it's been a couple a year or two since they released one, and they've slowed down their release cycle, which means that it's taking more money to develop a game, and they're not and so. It's taking more money into that, and so the the profit for the bottom line isn't as assured anymore. And 
And so like, I think they're going through a bit of a transition, of course, with COVID affecting game development and the studios. But again, Ubisoft, same same boat as Activision, where can you you have to argue is it current is where it is at justified and also just the inherent risk of being in a software essentially consumer software it's not industrial software it's not enterprise software but it's more loyalty it's consumer software which is very fickle and very vulnerable to disruption next up is ea again activision ubisoft and ea all fall into unique uh, the same position of of being consumer software, which is more volatile. However, EA is EA would is certainly one that I would like the most out of it. Its market cap is forty billion, so it's not as big as Activision, and its PE ratio is twenty. Ubisoft, I don't believe has a PE ratio, but EA, I I read their ten K report, and the first thing, the most eye catching figure is the amount of income they derive from the FIFA franchise, the FIFA trademark. It, it, I, it makes close to 10% of their entire bottom line, which is, which is, I think says a lot about EA and that it is, EA is like, they have FIFA, they have Madden, they have soccer and football or football and football. They have Star Wars franchise, Star Wars Battlefront and some different properties have spun off. It's it's EA. Yeah. It has it has a lot of ti- original titles. It has its own distribution uh, system, which they try to have some level of exclusivity to, which and which is interesting because that's not something that uh, Blizzard or Ubisoft have to this degree. And so. I think EA would probably be the more most dependable one compared to definitely compared to Blizzard and and Ubisoft because of just those consistent titles, EA Sports, of FIFA, Madden, NBA, NHL, because those are yearly. Those are very cyclical, and you can always count on the next cycle of going. And so from there's there's that foundation, of course, but but then of course they have their mobile divisions and whatnot and now EA's it's been panned as a as a, for being a bad company i believe it got worst company of the year uh award once from uh i forget the the vendor who provided it but at the same time like that level of corporate of consumer disdain hasn't really affected people purchasing ubisoft products people still buy fifa people still buy madden people still buy by Battlefield because those are those are titles that people want to buy. So EA, I think, again, it is up to the fickle demands of consumers, but I, I personally like it more than I would with Ubisoft and Activision because of that solid foundation of sports titles that I can count on. I think, and again, we look at, well, there's, there's the risk of, say, like FIFA taking away the the rights or, or Disney taking away the Star Wars rights, but at this point EA has proven itself that it can be trusted to deliver a, a solid product with those titles, which benefits the which benefits the Disney 
or whichever sports league is granting their rights to EA. And so there's that level of uh, assured trust at this point that works in their favor. Nintendo is now is, is the next company. And Nintendo's been... It's, it's different from the previous three companies in that Nintendo is more... It's not... I debated putting Nintendo on this list because you can't, it's not necessarily a, a video game company, right? Because they make consumer products on top of consumer software. But because of the, the recent news about during the pandemic of like Nintendo switches being hard to find because of the demand for them and some of the hype around some of the titles like animal crossing, then it seemed like an opportune time to talk about Nintendo. Yeah, it's, it's a company that's been around for for a while, and I, I have not read Nintendo's 10K report, and so I'm not fully aware of like the full extent of their business. But like they're recognizable, and they have a strong consumer facing consumer facing product, and like legacy. Right, and like some of their titles of Mario and Pokemon, like universally known. Nintendo Switch has reached a new demographic, but at the same time, I think Nintendo is probably the perfect encapsulation of the inherent risk in these video game companies. And that Nintendo Switch is a hit, but when it when it first released, there were issues with it, with it as a piece of hardware. And in the the lack of say third party titles. At the same time, if you look at the generation before with the the Wii U, that was a bit panned and didn't perform as well. Or you or like at some like the DSs and that platform. Also, it's not nowhere close to challenging, say PlayStation or Xbox, right? Which shows again essentially encapsulates this entire industry for being fickle, essentially because. There is no contracts with the consumer. They're not guaranteed to buy a product year in, year out, or from generation cycle to the next generation. And so every time you have to be sure to to deliver a product that they will want to market it in that way. And that makes it so essentially you have to catch on to trends or create trends. And I I don't think Nintendo it's an icon, but it's not a talisman. I don't think any of these companies are because they all diffuse off of one another because you have different signal bears, right? Because you, it's you have Xbox, right? Yeah, PlayStation. So it's, it's not it's not as if one of those is going to become the the fifty plus one majority, right? Because at this point, the the industry is a bit solidified in how it is, and it's a duopoly with Nintendo as a third party essentially for platforms and PC, but that's a bit part to to qualify in this discussion and so, and so it's a, it's a bit stuck and well like the last disruption was like uh fortnite and epic games and that disruption but it's not breaking into like the the established hierarchy per se and so it's uh, these companies are all cyclical now nintendo is a bit more di- diversification because of its let's say electronics facing facing uh, part of its business but at the same time that's it's that just essentially it's diversified but then you're multiplying by two because not only have are you facing the cyclical risks of of consumer software you're also facing the cyclical risks of consumer hardware and so you can't 
like Nintendo Switch is gonna have to is gonna have to move to the next generation. So maybe they can continue the trend, but it's not surefire. And again, if you look at its price, it's trending to the, the very top of of its current year of its of the cycle right now. It's all time highs for the past five years at the moment. And so it, it would be it would be tough to justify jumping in. And the last company is Take Two, which is more analogous to the previous three first three companies, but eh, not much. Its P ratio is forty five. Its market cap is twenty billion, and so yeah, it's one of the smaller caps. Again, Take Two, aside from the same formula of EA, Ubisoft, and Blizzard, except that it's Probably it's essentially like the middle of the Russian nesting doll of video game companies, and that it does have its own strong brands, really yearly cyclical guaranteed hit in 2K, the N- 2K, NBA 2K, and so not not too much to be said about about Take Two beyond that hasn't been said already. However, they do have NBA 2K which is their yearly guaranteed money boost. And the, and the one thing that can be said is that Take-Two does have some, some more interesting IP that are very cyclical, and that, specifically Grand Theft Auto, and that it only releases about every five years or more. But when it does, it, continue, it can be a solid cash cow. And the one thing that should be said for Take Two, Blizzard, EA, and Ubisoft is their ability to to monetize microtransactions. I think that because right now, like prices are, their income right now is, is a bit limited, right? Because there's only so many people who buy games, even if that number's gone up somewhat. So not still enough to justify. Prices have stayed flat. Now you can raise the price of sixty dollar AAA titles to seventy dollars, but how much of a boost is that really going to be in the long term with inflation? But the next, so the next frontier is uh, like microtransactions, essentially. However, that brings its own risks with legal suits. I believe in Europe, some cases about like the essentially how it's gambling and how it's a bit predatory, which has its merits. But when it comes to the business perspective, then that's essentially a a, a growth check to these companies and their next frontier. And so when you look at, again, because you're looking at the video game sector, these sectors compete against other sectors in terms of which one is going to make the most return on your on your investment. And so when you look at the video game industry, there's constraints with consumer demand and trends. And also, and then you have like these more regulatory concerns about can they get into the next frontier? Because I, I believe the income from Microsoft's actions is going to be what can increase the income of these companies that which would then justify the increasing of the stock price and it's not a guarantee to surmise the video game industry i enjoy video games but there's there's a there's a ceiling and it's very tough to pick a champion out of these companies and so investing in like a, an index fund that tracks these companies would probably be better than trying to pick a champion out of out of these because of the fickle nature of the industry up next 
we talk about a stock deep dive, Pinterest. Today's stock deep dive is Pinterest. Now, Pinterest is a, as a quick summation, is a social media company that is a, it's very picture oriented. And essentially, it's a place where you can save pictures onto boards and just and then get get ideas and be inspired from them and of or in more cynical terms make purchases from them and in from that perspective then pinterest is incredibly well positioned especially looking at it now pinterest has I mean, it's released this quarter its earnings report last week and it was a very strong earnings report that shot the price from 24 the mid 20s to 34 the mid 30s right now so i believe it's trading at 35 70 at the moment because it's grown its user base by 29 percent. and the most impressive thing is from reading their 10k report is that they have not fully monetized their platform they make it very abundantly clear that the future the long-term future of the company is dependent upon fully monetizing it and maximizing the advertising potential of it. And I think they certainly can because the platform itself is uniquely suited to advertising. Whereas most platforms, look at Facebook is probably the most generic example of a social media company out there. But ads on Facebook, right? You can tell they're ads. They're not really integrated into the experience. Like the the ad for for the ad for say a clothing line is different from say the from your friend posting about his weekend trip to the beach, right? It's fundamental, and you can and so as a user you can compartmentalize that. Now Pinterest, on the other hand, like the ads are the product is the same as everything else. Essentially, if you're looking for room decor. Then what somebody has some put up of a say like a of a tack board, then what's the difference between that between someone's tack board and then a tack board of say like a seller on Etsy, right? Because there isn't much, and so it's blurred. And so the the point of Pinterest and that it, already by using Pinterest essentially, it's a call to action of looking for things to use and to be inspired by. And so the the progression from that to go purchase something is is not that much of a stretch and so again when you and then you tie that into its continued strong user growth to 400 about 420 million users worldwide now then to 416 specifically then there's a lot to like about it about pinterest of course it is a it does not make a profit at the end of the day so there's always risk in that but i there's a for me there's a lot to like i would have loved to have gotten in on it before its earnings report back when it's in the 20s but now it's in the 30s i think that it's now here to stay facebook launched a competitor to pinterest but facebook shut that competitor down essentially pinterest has beaten the biggest baddest wolf in the area and has its own little territory to itself. Pinterest is Pinterest. Pinterest is fundamentally different from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any other Snapchat, any other 
especially the publicly traded ones. And and so to refocus, it's being off its competitor. It it knows what it's trying to do. It's reading the ten the ten K report. It's very focused on on increasing user base and then monetizing the platform. And I I think it can do that. I, just from the user base and then from the, the the way the platform is set up already fundamentally, then I don't I think that there's there's a lot of upside to a company that currently only has a market cap of twenty one billion. I think realistically it can it can move past that. It's so Pinterest is a company that will be interesting in the future. How Pinterest I think is a strong pick moving forward. That does it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please download or give a rating. And I'll see you but again. Actually don't do that. This is trading journal. This isn't here to give recommendations. Simply here for me to journal my ideas and my feelings and my sentiments. This nothing on this podcast was a recommendation to buy or sell. I never want it to be a recommendation. Simply me cataloging my ideas. So thank you for listening. Please be safe and make your own decisions.